in the real estate development industry. It's not the developers, it's the government. Absolutely. If the real estate development industry uh, output decreases, the people who are going to lose the most money are, government. are the city, number one, and the provincial feds, number two. So let me just, just because just you're the expert here, the average pro forma, not talking about the grand slams, but the average pro forma that you are looking at that the bank needs to see the profit has to be what percent? If, the, if taxes are 25, what's the percentage of profit that the developer's making? Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm your host, Ben Myers, here with the man, the legend, Mr. Stephen Cameron. Steve. How's it going? I don't know if I'm the legend. Legends here as our guest today, but uh, I'm good. Just to let everyone know that the Toronto Under Construction podcast is brought to you by Nizo Studios. The award-winning Nizo Studios is the premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Nizo can also help you market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit nizostudios.com and ask about live site their virtual sales center software it's the media darling taking the buildings industry process by storm steve we have a guest great we do have a guest and i'm gonna jump right into it because today we're all business and this guy is all business um however in some ways needs no introduction if you're in the development business and you don't know now you're likely off by 15 percent you're on your pro forma and probably in big big trouble (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now Finnegan is a 37-year veteran in the Canadian construction industry and a straight legend in the game as far as many are concerned. He has held several senior leadership positions in the business, including senior partner at Hellier, followed by President Valtis, Canada's largest construction cost consulting firm at the time. He was integral in founding the firm. Niall has a trusted history of success working for real estate lenders, developers, and building owners. He has developed a solid understanding of lenders' perspectives on real estate financing due to his extensive involvement with major lending institutions both in Canada and abroad. Niall's experience spans all types of buildings and projects including high-rise residential, office, hotel, retail, hospital, industrial, seniors housing, and long-term care, casinos, roads, and other infrastructure. In 2015, now co-founded Finnegan Marshall, Inc., which we will jump into in a short minute here. Niall's a friend to many and a trusted advisor of most, one of the most respected men in the business. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our honor to welcome Niall Finnegan to the show. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Did Steve nail that? I think it was 2014. Uh, but you were on. You let, let's jump into. You were on your own before that, uh, and you were. What did with, I say? With, with, did I not say? You, you said 2015. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump. Let's jump into the career. You you you're thinking about what you wanted to do in university, and uh, and uh, how did you uh, get into the uh, real estate business? Well, I studied uh, a specialist real estate course uh, back in Dublin, in Ireland, called Construction Economics. Adventure took me to Canada. I had spent four summers in university, uh, four months each summer working in different countries, Holland, Germany, uh, USA, and uh, uh, taking a month, six weeks off at the end, hitchhiking around Europe and having a lot of fun. And I decided that uh, when I was 22, that uh, uh, the thing that scared me the most was um, staying and staying. Uh, although I loved uh, my time in Dublin, was having a great time, was staying there, um, getting a good job, meeting a girl, getting married, and never, never leaving. So I decided I would uh, go away for about four years and sow my wild oats, and then move back to Ireland. Uh, I applied to Australia and I applied to Canada, and. Uh, I ended up in I ended up in Canada. Huh. Interesting. So it wasn't I, I figured you were chasing a girl, that's what you that's how no, you ended up no, here. No, it wasn't chasing a girl. They were chasing him, so he had to run. <laughs> so you so what was what was the what was the first position or what was the first job that you took here in Well uh, I moved Canada to um, I I I got accepted uh, by another Irish guy who was interviewing people for uh, two positions. It's a bit of a funny story and I'll try and be brief. 
he was interviewing me over the phone and there was a position in a in a in a place called Winnipeg and I uh, asked him if that was in Canada because I'd never heard of it before <laughs> and he told me it was so I asked him how many people were lived in Winnipeg and he said about 600,000 which being from Ireland which is only 4 million at the time was was a really big city so that satisfied me the first thing I did after I uh, accepted the position over the phone was to lo locate an atlas. You got to remember this is a, this is before um, Google, and I looked up. Uh, I tried to find Winnipeg in Canada, and I couldn't because I was looking on the west coast and I was looking in around Toronto and Montreal. <laughs> so the way I found it was I looked up the back of the atlas and checked out the longitude and latitude, and sure enough, I there saw was. Winnipeg was right in the middle. And being so naive about distances in North America. Uh, my first thought was, well, that's great. I'm right in the middle of everything. <laughs> but I had four happy years in Winnipeg. I, I don't have any regrets. I had a good time there. And um, uh, all I basically did in Winnipeg was uh, prepare construction estimates, which I, I found uh, a little demoralizing at the end because I wanted to get my teeth into a lot of, of uh, deeper things. But um, it did serve as a very good foundation for me. Uh, I moved to um, Toronto in 1985 and I uh, joined a small company at the time called Hellier. There was nine of us in the company and we, it was quickly, quickly uh, uh, changing the way that... The reason I wanted to join this company was that uh, they were very much at the vanguard of a new service called uh, Project Monitoring for Lenders. And one of my former partners, John Fleming, had initiated this. And uh, to cut a long story short, between 1985 and 2005, when we took the company public, after we'd merged with uh, Derbyshire Viceroy and Altus, which were three of us were all equal-sized companies at the time, we grew the company from about nine people to about 170 wow. uh, across, the, across the country, but predominantly in Toronto. And... Uh, the services we provided uh, I found quite exciting because it involved uh, addressing uh, the overall project as opposed to just construction costs, notwithstanding that construction is the most major component and therefore the most important. But um, we got right into uh, the, the overall feasibility of projects, um, doing all the hard and soft costs, uh, working initially for the lenders, but what happened was when you're working for the lenders, of course, you start getting exposed to all the developers. And the developers largely resisted this sort of uh, oversight initially. But in due course, they started to see the value of uh, professional cost consultants who did nothing but were cost junkies. And, and uh, uh, not only had they got... Uh, most developers, even the large ones, might only have two or two or three new projects a year, whereas we were dealing in hundreds and hundreds of projects per year. So we had a we had a an exposure to the marketplace that was sort of second to none. And uh, so what happened out of all of this was developers started coming to us themselves while while they were acquiring land or before they were launching projects. If it was a condominium for sale and uh, making sure that even before they were going to banks that their, their, their budgets, they were confident in them so as they would be underwritten and uh, it would minimize the risk later on of, um, of overruns and equity injections and all that sort of thing. So as time progressed, you know, we became sort of an integral part of a lot of our clients' uh, due diligence and uh, that they undertake and, and checks, uh, checks uh, against the marketplace and checks against themselves. And, and um, uh, so in 2005, I, uh, uh, along with my partners at the time, I was, I had uh, basically four or five partners in Hellier and uh, we, uh, we had this option to take the company public. Uh, it wasn't exactly my desire at the time, but some of my partners were uh, at the stage where they sort of had enough mm -hmm. and they wanted an out and this was a good out for them financially. So uh, we did the deal. Uh, we, we, we merged and uh, we took the company public on, all in one day and um, we became known as Altus Hellier and we had that name for about three years or something and then we abbreviated it to Altus and... Uh, 
Um, I stayed on for six years there. Uh, there was a three-year buy-in you had to stay on for, but I stayed on for an extra three years. As the president of the yeah, of the new, of the new of, organization of this, uh, for the for, uh, for the latter part, and then I, um, to be honest with you, I, I, I you know, it's I wasn't um, the whole public company um, ideal didn't really resonate well with me. It wasn't your stick. It wasn't my stick. Uh, yeah. Mainly because I found that, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Yeah. And I found it very difficult to be an entrepreneur in a, in a public company. So just the reporting and the regulation? The reporting. They were, you know, the was, I was spending 60, 70% of my time in what I felt were a lot of unproductive meetings and I, HR issues. I call them non-income producing activities. And um, but, <laughs> but probably the major part of it was I found it very hard to try and keep staff satisfied because there was a limit, uh, you, know, there's very, you know, I understand it. it was, we'd, sold our, we'd sold our goods to the public company and we had to pay dividends out to yeah. shareholders. But uh, it's hard to keep staff satisfied when there's limitations. Right. And, and uh, I, personally, I, I just wasn't very satisfied, so I moved on, uh, and I, I had a two-year two non-compete, which I uh, um, got involved in, in um, advising a lot of uh, private money, uh, which I was able to do, uh, a lot of equity money invested in predominantly in the high-rise residential marketplace. By various uh, network, high network families and such, and uh, so when the my non-compete finished, uh, my uh, one of my former colleagues at Altus, Ken Marshall, uh, he had also resigned, and uh, he was running a, a large uh, high-rise residential development company, and uh, so we sort of talked about you know what our ambitions were and we decided to start this new company called Finnegan Marshall and that was the birth of Finnegan Marshall the the, the objectives of Finnegan Marshall is to uh, <clears throat> we do a lot of things I guess that Hellier did but we we're we wanted to do more we wanted to be very very involved with our with our um, particularly with our you know developer and clients and be an integral part with our lender clients and I would say that you know, 85% of our business is probably 90% is probably repeat business with, with with our clients. And um, you know, we're at the stage where we really like to get them, help them, and get involved in in all the key decisions. Particularly, will I, won't I buy land? Mm -hmm. You know, how much should I pay for it? Does it make sense? Is it not? I mean, I do work with Ben on, on this sort of stuff. He he does. Uh, yep. delves in on the specialists on the revenue side when it's required and um, and then we touch you know people say well you know how involved do you get until a job hits construction as I always say if, if it's a high-rise condo or a, or a, a multi-res project I always say the most important parts are before you buy the land before you start selling because yep. then you've, you know, the condo business in many business respects is is one of the most stupidest businesses in the world because you got to pre-sell before you can fix your costs. Yeah. So it's very, very important to now more than ever when you start selling that you're confident in in your over you're extremely confident in your overall performance. So um, it's definitely before you start selling. Thirdly, before you go to the bank. Because when you structure your deal, you as a lender, yep. you want to, you want to that budget to stand up right till the end of the project and not have any uh, issues. There's always going to be hiccups, but you're trying to avoid major, epidemics. Major changes, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, the, you know, the fourth key time is when, uh, before we, you know, start construction and start tendering, and that's when we really get, we get a lot of dirt under our fingernails. We help, uh, we, act, we actively per participate in, in, in tendering key trades and, Right. You know, we've built up a large relation, relationships with almost all the trades out in the marketplace. So, uh, you know, we're able to, with our knowledge base and database, call us, call a bluff when yeah. it needs soon to be done. If, you, if we're not getting the market, the market price for certain trade work. So you guys are really like. And the, then we follow a project yeah. the whole way through, a month in, month out, right to the end. So I got a, I got a bunch of questions. Uh, 
but I, I want to ask, go back just a little bit to something you said, and and I guess it was the beginning of Hellier, and it was originally because it still is as a lender we rely on cost consultants to monitor the project. Originally, it was the bank saying, "Hey, come to me and." you know, make sure that you keep us in line. And it still is to this day, but it sounds like the evolution of your business. And I know this just from being in the marketplace is the developers are engaging you far before the banks are, and you become basically an advisor to the project and the developer far before you become the liaison for the bank. But it's an interesting push and pull because you technically at the end of the day work for the bank, right? I mean, correct. So, you know, in many respects, what transpired was when project monitoring, cost monitoring for lenders, lenders cost monitoring service started in the mid-80s. And was it existed before that? No, it didn't exist. Uh, It it, it all transpired out of um, John Fleming got asked in a project in Windsor to sign off on a a certificate uh, to Citibank at the time on a project, and he refused to do it. And they said, right. and they said, well, why won't you do it? Because the architect does it for us all the time. And he says, well, you shouldn't be relying on that because they don't know what they're doing. You know, they, they don't know what the what the contract says or what the contracts are or what the amounts are. And it just sort of evolved out of that. But the initially in in, in you know during the mid to late 80s, before the crash of late 89. Uh, I mean, we would be receiving uh, commitment letters, you know, one, two, three a day, just coming in. In, in those days, it was by mail right. from banks saying, you know, you're appointed and such and such. So, yeah, was, all the appointments were, were from the lenders. But what transpired in the 90s, particularly when times were tough from 1990 to 1995, 96, is that uh, there was an awful lot of... Um, other companies sprung up because smaller companies sprung up because there wasn't a lot of other work in the marketplace and the developers started insisting to the lenders which cost consultant they wanted to use so we were no longer at Hellier being being appointed if if a project had a relationship with somebody else right beforehand so actually Rather than the, the banks insisting that no 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 we this is our who we would like approved, they acquiesced, and we're letting the developers run make the decisions. So it actually that's how it all transpired. Really. So in the end, we huh. re- recognized that in order for us to be on certain projects, we had to get involved early Earlier, because yeah. the banks were just running with whoever the developer wanted. Had already picked. So yeah. it wasn't a case of. You know, and and it got into this weird situation of, uh, well, you know, are we in a conflict or are we not? You know, well, because one of my other questions is like, and, how do you manage uh, the conflict? Well, how we manage, we don't, you know, how we manage the perceived conflict is is that it's true reputation, really. right? You know, we're we we call a spade a spade. We we give the same answer to whoever it is, whether it's. Uh, uh, you know, a developer, or whether a lender or a lender, we'll, we'll, you know, we're there to, to give the facts. The business decisions are made by, by the owner, right. as a result of the facts, and the business decisions are made by the lender. We don't, we don't, have different answers for different people. Right. And, you know, people can say, well, that's easy to say, but we've proved it with our actions over decades. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I, I this kind of off topic, but uh, a project launched last night that was a a failed uh, a condo project, and and part of what I heard is they had a you know the second set of books. They had the books that they provide to the project monitor or the cost consultant, and then they have the second set of books. I wonder, I wonder what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that something that you, is common, or is this just a few bad apples out there? You know, I, I don't want to talk about specific names. Uh, it, it would be very inappropriate. But um, I don't... On projects we're involved in, I can guarantee you that it doesn't happen, right? Because we're involved in awarding the contracts with, with the trades. Like, And I know a lot of these trades. And these trades, you know, when they're in trouble and other projects, if someone's not paying them, 
and a job we may not be involved in, you know, they'll call us up and say, look, Niall, can you, what's happening here? And with a few phone calls, you can find out, right? But what's happening? So, you know, uh, there's one high-profile developer that got into trouble last year, and all I'll say is, you know, we weren't involved in the project, but we knew that that there was significant, very significant problems out there, and it's probably the reason we weren't involved on <laughs> in the projects. On well, it's good, it's good to projects, know because so you know when you when you hear it on one case, you, yeah. you, 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 uh, you know the word on the street gets out that it's a you know such a yeah. common practice. I, mean, right? I knew the trades with that developer were getting free units and future projects for uh, for past services. In order to disguise overruns, and that, and that was that was just common knowledge. Oh, well, it wasn't common knowledge, I guess, if if the lender didn't know about it. Right, the but you're on the street more than the well, I wouldn't be on. Yeah. very few people knew about it. You know. Yeah. Well, that's anyway. We don't have to dive into that yeah. too well, much. I guess I wanted another question: Is when you, when you started this new firm. Uh, was there something you wanted to do different in terms of the way that you? Yeah, went very about much. Things? We didn't want to be passive. We wanted to. We, we wanted to be uh, uh, very involved. Uh, it's 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 not for everybody, you know. It's not for uh, you know. There's several developers who that that wouldn't work for, but the ones who appreciate the added value we can give. Uh, when I say very involved, you know, we wanted to uh, say, look, we have this information for con construction. Uh, uh, we know for formwork's going for excavation or shoring or mechanical, electrical or drywall or such. And like, please, you know, please use us. We, right. This is we enjoy doing this. You know, it. You know, I, I, I'm really enjoy what I do. You know, it's to me, it's not work. It's, it's sort of. It is work when it's ten o'clock at night and you're still going slaving away. But it sounds like from what I've heard, it's ten o'clock is your prime hour, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I'm trying to, uh, you know, look. We have an amazing staff. Yeah. We we went out of our way to hire. When we started the company, we we basically Ken and I said, look, we're we don't want to, we're only going to hire, really really good people, and we'd rather not hire. Um. As a, and turn away work as opposed to hiring someone we were uncomfortable with. Right. So, you know, a lot of the success goes down not to not to Ken or myself, it goes down to our team, you know. And we were very fortunate that when we opened up that a lot of people who work with us now approached us over the first few months and, you know, asked, you know, you know, well, what are you guys doing? Yeah, you know, yeah. Maybe I'll join and, and, I mean, you know a lot of them. Yeah, of so. course. Yeah, every time I look at your website, you've got more faces on the uh, team page. So uh, yeah. <laughs> you must be pretty expanding pretty fast. Every, every developer that I that I uh, uh, deal with that's uh, a rookie and they're mentioning certain parts of a project that they're not sure about, I'm like, got to talk to Niall. Well, well, on that <laughs> note too, you know, not to you know not to pump your tire. I already got, gave you the tire pump in the intro, but. <laughs> It's true. Like most developers, senior developers in the city say they won't do a project unless, you know, your eyes are on it and you bless the numbers before they proceed. Um, I guess, you know, like what, what sets you apart in terms of, is it your experience in the business? Just the exposure to so many deals, so many I don't compare myself to our, ourselves to other companies. I just know what we do. Right. Right. And uh, we're, I just know that even in the evolution of prior companies that that I've been involved in, we're so much more uh, have our finger on the pulse of right. what's happening. Um, we're heavily involved in things like uh, you know we're heavily involved in the in the industry. We do a lot of pro bono work with with build uh, on all the various topical issues. So if you want to know what's going to happen in development charges or Parkland, or inclusionary zoning, or you know, items that are going to impact projects in one, two, three years—it's our job to know about it. Right. Like, we can't be reactive. You know, we we have to know. It's even like you know, the most topical item in construction in the development market these days is rising construction costs. And I, you know, I. 
sort of makes me laugh a little bit because it's been going on for six years. Six? Uh, six years. Okay. We've been going through this. And uh, I think in nine, two, nine, 2016, in our, you know, we have our monthly management meeting in the office. And I remember it started that year and just seeing, because, you know, construction is a, is, is a, is a, um, construction costs are reactive to demand and demand comes from sales predominantly now about one sixth of demand comes from rentals but that wasn't around six or seven years ago too much so if you understand what's happening and if you track what's happening in the sales market you know what's going to happen in the construction cost market in 18 months time it's right. pretty simple, pretty simple. Right, so in 2016, in our first management meeting, I remember coming in. Ken and I talked about it and said, "Oh, this is this is here's you know this is we've seen this story before," and we told all our you know our estimating staff and such that we're going to carry eight percent escalation this year, and we got a lot of pushback from clients because they were saying, no, come on, it's, it's been 3%, 4% a year for the yeah. last several years. And and we, we said, well, look, this is our advice. This I mean, you can take it or not take this it. This was in 16. In 216. Wow. So 216, 8%. 217, 218, 290, 220, you know, it's, we analyzed uh, recently, I, I did a presentation for the Royal Bank. Ken and I did, and we analyzed two projects from January 2016. Uh, both high-rise res projects, one at Young and Eglinton, one downtown. Conventional projects, cookie cutter, nothing you know over elaborate about them. You know, 400 unit buildings, yeah. 40 stories, uh, and we repriced them in the current marketplace. And uh, the conclusions were extremely interesting so construction costs and this is a five uh, 16 17 18 19, five and three quarter year period five and a half we did it in the summer five and a half year period construction costs were up 58 percent wow oh. right now in five years five wow. and a half years, five and a half years. that's nine percent a year compounded yeah right this is what's going to really surprise you because everyone's talking about construction costs soft costs were up 76%. Really? Mainly because of um, DCs. Oh, okay. You gotta remember DCs have doubled. So what do you, yeah, you include just, just for Part, the listeners? What, do you, what, are, what are soft costs? Soft costs is everything every, other than land and construction. Land and construction. So everything other than land and construction. Finance, everything. marketing, sales, design. Soft cost contingency, not yeah. hard costs. But if you think of soft costs, what's gone up? It's DCs have more than doubled. Development charges. Um, educational development charges also. Uh, Another word for tax. Um, Parkland is <laughs> Another tied. Word for tax. Parkland is tied to land value. Land values have gotten up uh, in that time period 150 percent. Yeah. I mean, land that was 80 bucks a foot back then is 200 a foot now, yeah. right? What, what are you seeing uh, on the, uh, just quickly on on the tax on a percentage of the budget that's associated with taxes? So include DCs, Parkland. I would include Section 37 in there for those who are listening who don't know what Section 37 is. is essentially a tax that the government imposes to... For bonus density. Bonus, call it bonus density. bonus density. Basically, to get your approval, you pay Section 37. Did they bundle the two, two taxes Well, they are. Now? They will be next year and next with year. the community benefit. Community the new benefit, community yeah. benefit what, what would you say percentage of... Because I always find this interesting. Everyone thinks, oh, you know... The percentage, the percentage of... Um, the percentage of costs that are municipal charges. So it's DCs, uh, Section 37, parkland, building permit fees. Educational levies. Educational levies, uh, street occupancy fees, right? Do you include HST and, in that And number? also HST is 25%. Right. So if yeah. you're buying a unit for five hundred thousand dollars, one hundred twenty-five thousand of that is going to the city and Fed provincial. So just think about that. I mean, I think that's such an important. Yeah. You know, do do the million-dollar version. So you buy a million-dollar condo, seven hundred fifty thousand goes to building it, and the balance goes to the government. Yes. But you know, according to people on Twitter, uh, developers aren't paying their fair share to the city. <laughs> well, 
I mean, think about the affordability. Think about how affordable the, condos would be if you could. The biggest, the most invested party in this, the in the real estate development industry is not the developers; it's the government. Absolutely. If the real estate development industry uh, output decreases, the people who are going to lose the most money it's are, the government. are the city number one and the provincial. Feds number two. So let me just, just because just you're the expert here, the average pro forma, not talking about the grand slams, but the average pro forma that you are looking at that the bank needs to see, the profit has to be what percent? If, the, if taxes are 25, what's the percentage of profit that the developer's making? Um, I would answer that question in the following way. When we're looking at due diligence and buying pieces of land on, on behalf of developers and whether it's they should do it or not, more often than not, our advice is uh, it's probably inappropriate to buy that piece of land at that price. Right. <laughs> so what actually goes ahead <laughs> yeah. is a lot less than, than, than what's turned down yeah. right? or what yeah. doesn't get purchased. So, But typically margins, acceptable margins are give or take 12%. Yeah. You know, uh, profit on cost, right? So, so less than you, half of what the government's making. So if, yeah, less than if half. You, of no, what I'm, the I'm just pragmatically. That's that's the math. Like, yeah, twenty five percent of costs are, are go to the government, and yeah. you know the, the the builder walks with ten to ten to fifteen percent usually. Yeah, and it's it, you know it's, as you know, it's an extremely high risk business. <clears throat> um, it's not for the fool, hardy. Definitely not. And. Uh, you need to be extremely disciplined, and you need to be experienced, and you, you need to know what you're doing. And it's, uh, you know, single-family housing um, is, is a lot shorter time frame uh, for developing, uh, a, you know, a project. But if you're in the high-rise business, you know, your project scales and time scales are give or take seven, eight years. Right. You know, between four years of getting approvals and four years of building it, and then you got two more years at the back end dealing with uh, the warranty issues. Yeah. So it's a long, long, long time frame. You go through a lot of economic cycles. So, do you, do you believe that the return and risk are? Is there an equilibrium, or do you think that the return outweighs the risk, or the risk outweighs the return? Well, in today's day and age, anyways. Well, I mean, there's. Projects are, I mean, what's the, re, re, in development, return ha, is different things to different people. Because the money doesn't, the investment money, the equity money to do projects typically comes from large in, in, investors, right? It doesn't always come from, there may be a, a brand name who's developing, but that's, it's not all their money, right? They're borrowing, they're high, borrowing highly levered money in order to yeah. do it, for which they're paying they're promising, you know, or they're paying 10% equity or interest on their equity they're borrowing. So, or more. Or more. So, uh, you know, to do the projects now with the, with the dollars that are involved, you know, the equity requirements are, are massive. So, you know, that type of money is change isn't sitting in people's pockets yeah. waiting to be deployed. Are there, are there many developers that are still not taking equity partners on, on deals? Yeah, there, there, there are. Um, you know, obviously, yeah, they would be predominantly, I would say, uh, either institutional um, companies backed by institutional money. When you can say that money is coming from pension funds or something else, something similar, or their families who have been very successful over many, many decades, who have the ability to, you know. Do it themselves, but, right. but, but by and large, by it's, yeah. it's it's borrowed money. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to read a quote from you, uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, I want you to comment on it. So it's uh, from a recent article. It says formwork costs have really started escalating. Uh, they really didn't start escalating until three years ago. Um, uh, and those of us who are involved in the day to day in the industry, we appreciate the former costs uh, today are probably. Uh, two and a quarter times what they were three years ago. Um, so, is formwork is that one of the biggest uh, you know factors driving up construction costs right now? Well, formwork is the largest uh, trade on a project. Just for listeners, formwork is the concrete structure. It ex 
in order to erect it. It doesn't include the concrete and the reinforcing steel itself, but it's 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 the carpentry work involved in forming high-rise. And that must have been written about a year ago because uh, uh, it's about four years now since formwork prices <laughs> went up. And went up. <laughs> And it all happened in September of uh, 218, uh, 217, I should say. And uh, formwork prices are, uh, yeah, they've they've escalated considerably. But there's other trades that we've had very large increases in as well um, over the years. Uh, this year, it's. The biggest impact has probably been a mechanical, lesser extent, uh, drywall, uh, reinforcing steel, and electrical. You know, but uh, the other trade that's consistently had increases is windows. I mean, the the, the increases are driven not by they're they're driven by many different factors. Uh, demand being obviously number one. The shortage of land. I mean, this this is. I don't want to jump in the bandwagon here, but you know, our, the, the the biggest one of the biggest issues in the industry that people need to appreciate is is that um, right now in in the GTA there are only three months supply of unsold units, and in the high rise market that's about three eight point seven five months, and in the low rise it's less than one month, and a balanced market is give or take eight or nine months, so. I always compare it to if there's nine lo- if there's nine people who want to buy a loaf of bread and there's only three in the shop, obviously the price of bread's going to go up. Right. So that's what's happening. So why is this happening? Or why is it so hard why to understand that? Why is it happening? It's, well, it's happening because our approvals and land that's been approved largely by the municipalities cannot keep up with the demand. So to me, there's a big disconnect between the ambitions the, the, the net, not just the ambitions, but the intentions and necessity of of increased immigration. Uh, in all, because if we don't continue to have very high immigration levels, we're going to run into a big structural problem in this country because our population is aging and the amount of remaining people who are going to be able to work are going to be declining and mm-hmm. they're going to be supporting an aging population base. And it, it, it's a recipe for disaster. And our birth rate is, is not substantial enough to, to rectify this. So the only way that we can address this as a country is to increase our immigration levels. And the stated level is 1% of our population, which hasn't been achieved yet. But uh, So how does that tie into the price of real estate? If you're going to have 400 or 350,000 people coming into the country, right? You got to provide housing for them, yeah. and, and if the that's what thing, our goals are, and the first we thing got that to it'll... we got to free up land and density in order to provide this housing, and we got to get rid of this, you know, NIMBY approach of, uh, you know, not in my backyard is this going to be allowed, and, and we got to increase, force increase densities, and there's no other way because it's not going to be from urban sprawl. That's been proven through right. Green Belt Protection Act and various other things. Uh, many people want to move, want to work in Toronto and live in out beyond the Green Belt. Right. Not as many as, you know. Well, there's nothing yeah. out there. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like, there's 350,000 people come to Canada every year. I've heard, you know, anywhere from three to 400,000 people, 60 to 70% are going to end up in southern Ontario, predominantly in the GTA. They, and, and, and what I'm hearing, you know, through the banks and through different investors is that many of them are coming. They have more money today. Immigrants today have more money. They come with more money than they did, call it, 60 years ago. A lot of the immigrants that came 60 years ago came with nothing but the clothes on their back. A lot of them now have cash and are coming from economies that are not stable, governments that aren't trustworthy. And in their mind, the safest place to put their capital on day one is just to buy a house, buy a property, buy real estate. And it's becoming a huge problem, right? Like there, there isn't enough supply and you, you just nailed it now. So I guess the question is like, how do we fix this? Like, what's the solution? Because we talk about it all the time. And yeah. in, in we business. talk about it on every episode. No, but it, not, not even on every episode, like in every conversation that I have day to day it's like oh, we got it, it seems the, so simple like supply and demand it seems like the most basic economic well, we got first to, thing you we learn we got to stop departmentalizing uh, 
government uh, strategies. This is our federal government strategy, and ultimately that dictates what's going to happen in the housing. I mean, if, four, if, if you have 350,000 people and the average household size, I think it's 2.1 people or something like that. So that's about 160,000 new homes a year just for population growth. Right. Right. And give or take, even if a third of them come to Toronto, uh, which is probably roughly what the numbers are, or to the GTA market, that's 50,000, 50 something thousand new homes. That's more than what we're building and more than what we've had the capacity to build. So I think when it, ultimately it's municipalities that approve um, densities and approve lands for development and such. So there has to be a discussion between yeah. you know, the feds and the, feds, the province, obviously, and, uh, and, and, and the cities on resolving this. And then from, from the point of view of building the homes, because we have a huge shortage of trades, right? And there, you know, the, the, the unions and the owners are constantly trying to get the feds to um, open up immigration to skilled carpenters. Right. And to electricians and to plumbers and like we need so many of these People, trades right. here in order to build the homes. It, it, it's there's no point in in freeing up all the land. There's nobody to build build the, the you know the homes and uh, that's a structural problem as well. So it's all core. It's all yeah. interconnected. Oh, yeah. I think that's there's a fundamental issue is there's backlogs right you know is in the ability to build because you know as you mentioned some of these the skilled workers that we do have are also getting older and going to be retiring soon and is there enough is there enough finance dollars to finance these projects is there enough companies to build them is there enough cranes to, <laughs> to build all these projects right but uh, I did have a question here I wanted to actually have another quote from this is one of my clients that they they sent to me I think last week uh, we're finding certain supplies like fan coils and windows are just not available and and we're not able to uh, get work completed without sometimes doubling the previously negotiated contract. I'm sure we're not the only ones in this situation, but I've decided not to launch projects until buildings have come out of the ground. And they are, uh, you know, very financially stable company. Yeah, I mean, but that, they're an anomaly probably. Yeah. Is there any other developers that have you talked to that are going to try to build first before sales? No, is that I, even possible? Well, I don't know how that... They must have very deep pockets. <laughs> it's interesting. I uh, I had a discussion with Mark Smith, and he told me that uh, this developer told you know the city of Toronto have now changed their policy that you have to pay development charges on the first permit, and not on the first above grade permit. So in other words, when you get a shoring permit, you got to pay your development charges. The full amount. The full amount. Wow. And he uh, this developer was unaware of this. And um, he doesn't have all his pre-sales in place to satisfy his lender commitment. And therefore, he can't, he's no access to the funds in order to pay the DCs. And was asking for our advice, you know, is there anybody who's successfully appealed this or anything? I said, unfortunately, it's not. I mean, the city just changed their policy and that's it. And you're not getting a building permit unless, unless uh, you pay your DCs. Wow. So company who want to build to grade are also going to have to pay their DCs <laughs> up front. Yeah. And DCs, you know, for, I don't know if it's is this an apartment building? Condo building? They're a condo developer. All right. Yeah. So the average DCs, but you know, it depends on, a, is it in Toronto? 905. 905. Yeah. So 905, the average DCs could be 60,000 a unit. So many units are there? Yeah. 400? Yeah. 24 million? <laughs> That's the type of numbers you're talking about. Wow. And so why don't, you know, well, I guess this question is almost for Steve. Do you think you'd be able to uh, evolve your business to allow to do loans before sales are in place? Maybe not before sales, but I will tell you that there have been a number of projects built in the city and not necessarily just financed by us. And now, you know, it's, it's sort of like the un, unspoken scenario where you're supposed to have your building permits to get going. But I've seen... I've seen projects top off without building permits. It happens all the time because the permits are so slow. The site development's approved, 
and you're basically have the green light from the city, but like where you get the green light, you know, from one office, the guy doesn't walk the paper down to the other one. It ends up at the bottom of the pile. Everyone knows that you're ready to go. You can't wait. Your interest, <coughs> lo your, your land loan's ticking at, you know, 6% maybe. Your construction loan's gonna kick in at 4%. And the lenders, you know, some lenders, and, and now you'll, you'll you could speak to this sort of like use their common sense and like practically speaking like yeah we understand the deals approved we've seen the paper we'll fund and i, I don't know like i, no, I did this true. one deal with yeah. we, i mean we constantly have to unfortunately sign off on things because this and i'm not trying to blame the city and such and such but because paperwork's not in blame place blame the city now come on no no, no it's no, <laughs> no look we have to work with the city it's it's very important it's we're all in it together and and such and such but uh yeah it's it's we, we just use our common sense that look we appreciate there's not a formal permit issue but you know we've checked with because the inspectors are coming to the site still and they're doing all the reviews every couple of weeks and they're okay with it you know they're they're blessing what's Ongoing. They are, and that's the thing too. Like the the, the city does come out, and they they don't stop because they're like, listen, this is you may not have your. They realize their own deficiencies. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. You think you think this is situation. It is sad. So, you didn't really answer my question. What, what was your question? Do you think you would ever get comfortable oh. lending on projects so without pre-sales? Before before the pandemic hit, I was down in New York, and I did a tour for two days with one of our investor partners. And we looked at a bunch of different sites and different projects, and it's quite fascinating. We talk, we spoke about this briefly yesterday in terms of like how conservative the Canadian banking system is. There's basically five banks, they're all regulated by the feds very tightly. It's changed a lot over the last 25 years, and it's really allowed for firms like us to grow and flourish because 20 years ago, the banks would do what we do, right? Like we're lending at 75, 80% loan to value, loan to cost on different projects where the banks want to be at 50 to 60%. The banks used to do that. And you, you I mean, I was, one of my questions for now, and we'll get to it is like, do you have any war stories or scary memories from the early nineties um, when, when things really started to change? But when you look at the banking system in New York, this is a long winded, winded answer, answer to your question is that they're building they're building 60, 70, 80 story towers with maybe 20% sales, maybe, mm -hmm. sometimes with no sales yeah. and they're spec building condos and then they're selling them at the end. And when I was there, this was, you know, 19, 2019, there was probably 10 buildings in the sky that had cranes on them that were 60% complete. And I was talking to one of the, the, uh, the guys touring us around, he goes, see that crane there? And I'm like, yeah, you see the cranes. Like that crane hasn't moved in eight months. Oh no. Because you know they 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 the, the, the cost went up. They had multiple layers in their capital stack. They had their first, their second, their mes, their sub mes. They run out, <laughs> they run out of capital, and how they perform. You know the building all of a sudden is underwater because they got no sales. So mm -hmm. I, I don't see it happening in the short term. I don't see it happening here. But what is happening is a lot of guys will say, okay, I could. I could build a rental and it checks out as a rental and I could also make it work as a condo Yeah, and they begin as like with no sales as a quote-unquote rental and maybe they'll pivot halfway through yeah. kind of minimize the units and then sell at the end but I don't know now what do you think do you think at any time well uh, the first thing I would say is is that watching the I think one of the reasons that the Toronto market has been so successful in executing construction projects over the last the time I've been here, which is since 1985, is that the lenders are very disciplined. <clears throat> I think the lender, the discipline that the lending community has brought to the real estate development industry has been very positive. I look at, because we used to have offices in Vancouver and other cities, and I can tell you it's, it's quite different out there. Uh, they're, they've, they've had a rising tide out there for so many years, yeah. so it's covered up a lot of warts and such. But uh, as has it here, they're they're a, a lot, lot less. You know, it's a lot less uh, pre-sale requirements out there. That said, um, probably the most successful, some of the most successful condo projects uh, have been ones that started out as a rental and 
did get financing as rentals and then um, switched to be condominiums <laughs> yeah. halfway through. Now, it wasn't the intention, but it was because of rising condo sales values. And the reason that they were so successful was, of course, they were able to capture the the the, the, the wave of increasing sales costs while they were able to lock in their construction costs way earlier right. than waiting for pre-selling condos. So the margins were, 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 were better. And uh, there, that said, you know, there are one or two developers who do have that relationship with their lenders who allow them to go okay, ahead without yeah. the pre-sales. And there are certain projects that are able to go ahead with lower pre-sales and different lower tranches of pre-sales than the conventional. They're few and far between, and well, a lot of it boils down to covenant and experience, and and you know, I guess what they're going to pledge in support of. Well, we're doing that. one together right now. We're well, we are doing one, but I don't like to talk specifically. No, about that's, that's specifically. I'm not getting into specifics. I'm no. just saying one one of the reasons why developers use a firm like Cameron Stevens opposed to the TD Bank, for example, is because we, you know, we're creative and flexible and think about. How can we get you going? A lot of the, the question is, I, you know, I have 15% sales or I have 20% sales and I want to start now. Like, I want to get going. I want to get the shovel on the ground. So how can you get me started now? And as I build and as I show progress on site, I'm certain more sales will come. And oftentimes, uh, it's they're, they're right, you know, especially yeah. in the higher end, more luxury. Yeah, the higher end, the boutique product, project, like, sometimes you, know, you need to show the end users that yeah, it's for can't. real. But exactly. one of the, actually, one of the benefits of having this longer sale process to, to completion process is it gets investors involved, right? Because they can see, okay, I'm investing in real estate without a mortgage, right? And then, you know, in some instances, they're putting less than 20% down, right? And, and getting that appreciation. And, and so if we went to a shorter time between uh, purchase and completion, maybe we'd have less investors and maybe we'd have less buyers, well, there's, right? There's, you know? there's two distinct markets in, 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 in the high-rise condominium business. One is the investor market, and one is the end user market. And the, you know, the vast majority of condominiums that are sold are for are investor driven. And you're you're dead right, Ben. I mean, what is a an investor is really buying an option? Yeah. You know, for fifteen percent, if it's in outside the downtown core, it's which is the deposit structure in this market. It used to be twenty, but it's now fifteen. And in downtown, it's still at 20. And that option, you know, gives them five or six years. That's true. Right? That's, that's, all, that's, what's it, that's what the market is. So, yeah. so their, their returns are, are not based on 100% of the purchase price. Their returns are based on 15% of the purchase price or 20% of the purchase price. So that's why it's been very attractive and they've proven to be correct. And then you have your end user product, which is for people who are actually going to live in them, these and, and that's mainly geared towards higher-priced condominiums, larger condominiums. And like, if you're a if you're an owner-occupier, you're not going to wait five years. No. Yeah. Absolutely not. Right to move into a project. So there are some exceptions. I mean, the capital project by Madison Homes has just been launched, and it's been had, and that's all end users, and it's been very successful. But you know, they're ready to go, and they're mm-hmm. going to you know, it's a sort of a three-year time frame. Or, you know, it's 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 you can feel it. Or that other project that we're involved yeah. in here, the Seven Dale project, is uh, you know it's all end users, yeah. and those people have a shorter time frame. They want to move in in a year. Yeah, and that's part of the reason you can't why pre-sell you, those five years out. No, no, mm-hmm. you, they want you know the buyers want to say, okay, I have a, I live in a nine million dollar house and I want to sell it and I know to sell it it's going to take me 120 days and then I have a 60 day close and then I have to move so like I got to time it for when I can move into my new place I mean it's very practical Um, we we did start a a little late today so we got to keep 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 moving the ball down the field here we're we're almost there I Uh, do want to ask one quick question because this one is relevant to to me (laughs) because I'm obviously I'm making recommendations on unit mix and uh, and everything's with the, this investor market shrinking, 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 what are you seeing on the efficiency of, of buildings? Right, you know, I worry that if we shrink the the corner units too much, that the hallways get longer, then the efficiency of the building gets worse, and there's less to sell. 
Is that something that you get involved in with your clients? Hugely, hugely. I mean, when you asked earlier on about what we wanted to do that we do different, that's one of the things we do. And right at the start of a project, way, way before it's launched, like we're we're all over efficiency. Yeah. We're all over. If, if saleable efficiency is rule one, there's two rules in real estate: buy your land at the right price, and your efficiency, your saleable efficiency. If you get that wrong out of the gate, you're dead. It's, you don't even try and recover. You know, it, it's. So what efficiencies are you seeing these days? Well, because like, I remember when, when I started. Well, when we quote, all over the place, yeah. but when we quote efficiency. We we quote efficiency against construction area, not, not against no saleable. no saleable versus construction area, right. as opposed to saleable versus what everybody calls GFA, because GFA differs from from municipality to municipality. So GFA is outside face of exterior wall to outside face of exterior wall from the ground floor up. Um, that's construction area and GFA. Different municipalities have certain exclusions. They exclude the stairs, they exclude the elevators, they exclude the amenity, they exclude the mechanical, really? electrical. Oh, I, I, they exclude all I this. I had no idea. And GFA is, depending on the municipality, if you're up in North York, your GFA is actually going to be higher than your GCA because they include underground area. And if you're, other than parking stalls themselves, if you're in Toronto, GFA is probably around nine, it depends, you know, the smaller the plates, if it's a 750 meter square foot plate, your GFA is going to be about 92, 93% to GCA. So, if you've got a plate size that's only 500 meters or 5,500 square feet, it might only be, it might be 80, 87%. So, when we quote efficiency, we quote it against construction area. Why? Because you got to build the whole damn thing. You got to build your amenity. You got to build your elevators. So the typical efficiency on a 750 meter square foot plate, which is what the city like to see, on, uh, and and with a three-level story podium, you know, 40-story building, you're probably in the range of around 78 percent, 77, 78, okay, I was, I was that right. type of number. Okay, interesting. If it's the plate sizes are small, you're down to low 70s. If the plate sizes are larger, like if you got 10,000 square foot, 11,000 square foot plates, because the core is staying the same, basically, right? It's just the units are getting larger. Your efficiencies get up to 81, 80, 81, you know, so 82, even possible, right? So you can see straight away that if you're running at 77, 78%, and that's giving you your profit margin, if you only hit 72, well, 72 over 78 is you're losing almost eight or nine percent. Wow! All of a sudden, your profit margin is basically yeah. gone. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, so that's, that's it's so critical. Yeah. Well, we got a couple minutes left. We have a, a rapid fire section that we usually do. So it's like five, you know, five ten word responses here. Oh, no, you gotta so, go. Ben, take it away. Okay. Does anyone ever complain about your accent? Oh, lots of times. <laughs> <laughs> What is a bigger problem in Toronto real estate development? Bad developers or bad city planning and policy? Bad city planning and policy. But I, that was close. Bad developers are a close second. No, <laughs> no, no, come no on. Most, come most on. developers are, are fairly are disciplined, fairly disciplined. Yeah. Will we get to the point in the next 20 years where we're building more rental than condos? No. Would Toronto be better off with more residential developers or less? I think uh, more because it maintains competition. That's a good answer, good answer. Expose concrete ceilings in condos. Good idea or bad idea? Bad idea. Why? Because <laughs> they, they look the shits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is, is the average developer too over leveraged? I'll say yes because you use the word average. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Will you hire people in the future for full-time remote work? Yes, it's going to happen. Wow. This is the first guy who's ever actually kept it to five yeah, words yeah, or less. You're, you're we're, we're the one that's slow. How many emails process? do you get a day? 
I don't count them, but probably 200. What time did they start and what time did they end? <laughs> well, I got two projects in London. Ah, uh, wow. England, so they start straight away. <laughs> <laughs> Should we ban And I only do those projects because my two older daughters live there. So. Nice. So you get to you get excuse. I got to fly over once a quarter. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Should we ban foreign buyers? Well, there's a question that relates to London. Uh, no. Who is a better dresser, Finnegan or Marshall? I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> okay, last one. I just, just, just. I always like to ask this. I haven't asked it in a while. If you had one piece of advice for, uh, you know, we have a lot of students and sort of younger generation listening to the show, people getting into this business. If there was one piece of advice that you could pass on, pass along, what would it be? Be humble and have, and listen well. That's good. That's very, good. Well, thank you for good. for coming. Very we want to we want to want you to be late for your uh, daughter's your, parent teacher interview. Parent teacher interview. Like, so. yeah. Do you expect uh, do you expect good feedback? Oh, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it happens or not, another thing. <laughs> so they get people can find you finneganmarshall.com. Is that the is that the website? Yes. Perfect. Will you come back and do this again? Yes. It would be great. This is good. Even after like five words or less. <laughs> you still have five words. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it's been a pleasure. It. Take care. All right. Thank you. Till next time.